Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm so glad that you're here uh, this morning. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who have come specifically to support those who um, were baptized, and it's just a wonderful celebration. Uh, an outward profession of an inward change, and that is the beauty and the amazing transforming power of the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You're coming in kind of right in the middle of a series we're going through as a church, and we like to take a pause on kind of our studies through the book of the Bible. Um, We've spent some time in Psalms and Daniel and and, uh, so far this year, but we'd like to talk about the the four cultures of a healthy church or the, the four things that we want want to hold to is as people of God and as Connection Church Athens. And if you remember so far, we've talked about evangelism and we've talked about serving. And this week we come to uh, generosity and next week we will talk about community as well. And I will confess to you, this is the first time I have ever preached on the topic of generosity. And so I ask for your grace this morning as we talk about this. But as you get into scripture and you read the, 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 the Bible, you recognize that this is a really big deal. The subject of money and possessions and our stewardship is a big deal. Let me give you some kind of quick facts about how big of a deal this is. Nearly 25% of Jesus' words were about money and possessions. A lot. One out of 10 verses in the Gospels are about money and possessions, and roughly half of Jesus' parables are about money and stewardship. Jesus did not talk about money once a year. If I was more Christ-like in my preaching, we'd probably talk about this once a month. Why is this such a big deal in Scripture? Is it because God's short on cash? I don't think so. I believe that this is such a big deal in scripture and and Jesus talks about this so much because our stewardship and our stuff are a really good indication of the affections of our hearts. My mom used to always say, you'll spend your money on something. You'll look at somebody who spends 500 bucks on clothes and think that's ridiculous, but then when that, you know, 500 or or $10,000 four-wheeler comes available, you'll spend it like that. Why? Because our money reveals the affections of our heart. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to talk about our hearts. We're going to talk about the transforming power of the gospel and how the gospel produces, produces excuse me, generous people. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this is what Paul's talking about to the Corinthian church. Paul's not in Corinth when he's writing this letter. He's in Macedonia. I don't know if you caught that in the first five verses. He tells us where he is. And he's writing to the church to tell them about an upcoming opportunity for generosity. Now, you see, uh, there would be collections from all of these different churches, right? In the early days of the church, they would uh, collect offerings and they would take these financial resources and they would take them to Jerusalem to further on the mission of the gospel, um, to aid in church planning and in mission work and, and give to the apostles as well so the kingdom could be advanced. And Jerusalem would kind of be that place where they were pool their resources. And Paul is writing ahead. It's almost like Kellyanne or Jamie coming out here with the microphone and giving an announcement, right? Next week, this is what's happened. Next month, this is what's happening. Why is Paul letting them know in advance this is what's going on? He's going to tell us that he wants to make sure that they give from the right heart and from the right motivation. He's preparing their hearts for this opportunity so that when they give, it won't be done as a result of greed, 
or compulsion, but it would be an act of worship to their God. Paul isn't satisfied with the Corinthians' money. Uh, Connection Church Athens is not satisfied with just getting your money. We want all of us to be producing a lifestyle and a culture of generosity because of what Christ has done for us. Let's read the first five verses of this passage. And the first thing I see in this passage is that the gospel produces generous people. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, not to speak of you, uh, will be put to shame by this confidence." So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. The same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not, and not affected by covetousness. How could Paul be sitting in Macedonia, right, hundreds of miles away from the church at Corinth, and know something about this church and know that they would be eager and ready to give? Was it because he knew them so well and he thought they were the greatest people? Or maybe perhaps it was, it was the idea and he knew that the gospel had transformed their hearts and the gospel was producing generous people. You see, the power of the gospel is not just to change your behavior or make you right with God. The power of the gospel is to transform your heart. That's what God came to do. That's what Christ came to do. He came to take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Listen to the NLT paraphrase of this verse. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. When we try to clean ourselves up and live a righteous life without the power of God, we're trying to make it on a stony, stubborn heart. Anybody ever been there before? Where you've tried to clean yourself up, but you continue to run back to sin because you're trying to change the outward appearance and your outward behaviors, but God has got to do something supernatural in each one of us to give us a soft, responsive heart. Now, I know I'm talking to somebody this morning, but you've lived years of your life with a stony heart, and then the Word of God met you, and your heart was changed. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. The power of the gospel is that Christ came and he died and he rose again to give you a new heart and completely change your desires. I want to give you two gospel truths this morning that change the way we see our stuff, the way we see our money. Can I give these to you? The first one is a stony, stubborn heart goes from this uh, perspective that everything is mine to everything is God's. Have you ever had this perspective with your money before? I woke up early. I went to work. I worked hard with my talents and my abilities for two long weeks, and then I got the paycheck, and I saw that amount. I was you know, appalled by the amount of taxes taken out, but then when I saw the part that I actually got, I thought, that is mine. I earned that. That's all mine. I get to spend it however I want. Popular mindset, mindset we've all had before, just not true just not true. Let me read you three verses about Christ's ownership of everything. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That's a short couple of sentences, pretty comprehensive. Let me, let me read it one more time. 
The earth is the Lord's. That's the planet. Okay? God owns the planet and all it contains. Right? He owns the house and all the contents of the house and all those who dwell in it. He owns all space. He owns all the land. He owns all the stuff. He owns all the people. That's a lot of stuff. Let me read First Chronicles 29, verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. That passage tells us the source of all honor, glory, power, and riches. And who is it? God. Psalm 50, verse 10. This is a passage that I hear, and I don't think of David as a sheep boy with a little harp singing. I think of him with a cowboy hat, and you'll see here why. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I just see David being like, Whew. Cat on a thousand hills, little cowboy in him. He says it's all God's. Are you ready for this, church? Hard truth. We've been dancing around it. Nothing is yours. Nothing is yours. The title on my car says Liam Hardy. It's not mine. There are some bank accounts in this world that are tied to my social security number. It's not mine. Olivia Hardy and Reese Hardy are not mine. There's somebody above me who owns everything and who has authority over everything, and he's not Liam Hardy. He's God. And I haven't earned one red cent in my life. That means when I see my paycheck, I should not say, ooh, that's mine. Good job, Liam Hardy. I should fall on my face in front of a holy God and say, Lord, thank you for giving me the talents and the abilities and the strength and the oxygen to earn this paycheck so I can provide for my family. It's all his. At this point, you're probably saying, Liam, you're being zero fun. (laughs) You're being zero fun. I'm about to get a little less fun and then I'm going to get a little more fun. One more thing. This, I think, is where church people fall short with the tithe. Okay, we're going to talk about the tithe here in a minute, and we're going to talk about some benchmarks for giving. That's all coming in the passage, but just hold on with me for a second. Some of us have this mindset of, I'm supposed to be generous. I'm supposed to give, and so I'm supposed to give 10% to the church as a tithe, right? An Old Testament benchmark or standard of giving. But if I give 10% of my paycheck to God, then I get to keep the 90 and use it however I want. And that just does not work with Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains and everyone who dwells in it. So maybe, church, your next step in generosity this morning is to rethink the way you see the 90, even if you've been giving. Saying, Liam, are you saying I'm supposed to give 100% to the church? Uh, No. But how do I see that money that's in my bank account that I'm not giving to the church? And do Olivia and I see God as Lord over that money? So when we're making purchasing decisions, do we bring God into it? Do we submit ourselves every day and we're swiping the credit card and we're doing all the different things and we're making deposits and we're dreaming for the future? Are we allowing God to be Lord of our lives? Are we saying, no, I gave him 10%. I can do with the rest how I please. Am I using my grocery bill to make a disciple out of Reese Hardy? Am I using my home for community and building up the body of Christ? Or do I see it as I give a little bit to God? Here, Lord, here's some crumbs, and I get to keep the rest for my kingdom. Everything 
is his, the stuff we give to a charity, we give to a church, our time that we give in service and everything else. It's all his. Second gospel truth is fun. That one's fun too. This one's funner. First one is everything is God's. Second is because of Christ, I am rich. Because of Christ, I am rich. Do you know there's a lot of people in our world who are spending 100% of their paycheck on themselves and they are empty? If that's your mindset of building your kingdom, I just want to challenge you this morning. Do you know there's a lot of people giving a lot of their money away and they are full? There are a lot of people living generous lives who are very, very full. And it doesn't make sense because it's not a, a math problem. How could somebody be full? even while giving everything away. And what we see in this gospel truth is that this mindset shift, this new heart is the key to our contentment because if I have that cold, stony, stubborn heart, enough will never be enough. Paul's already been talking about the beauty of the gospel and how uh, he's been teaching them that they are rich in Christ. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to go back one page in my Bible to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul, Paul sums it up so beautifully in one verse. Look at verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's writing to a church, people transformed by the gospel, and he's saying, you know the grace of Jesus. I ask you, church, this morning, do you know the grace of Christ? Do you value the grace of Christ? Do you see the grace of Christ as the thing that makes you rich, as the most valuable thing? You know, Paul's teaching us, and he teaches us in, in, in Ephesians as well, God's not holding anything back from you. We see him as as the authority, as Lord over everything. But Christ did not just take our resources and say, I own everything, and so I'm not going to do anything for you. But he stepped down into flesh, and he became poor, and he suffered, and he died so that we could be rich in Christ. And we can say, like Paul did in Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenly places in Christ. Christ is not holding back anything from us. And this is the mindset of the one changed by the gospel Everything is God's, and I am rich in Christ. Beautiful, isn't it, church? He's not holding any good thing back from us. And Paul knew that these were people who'd be ready to be generous with their lives because they'd be transformed by these gospel truths. Second point I see in this passage is the right motivation for generosity. The right motivation for generosity in verses 6 and 7. Read those with me. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I said earlier, this is week three of this series. We've talked about evangelism. And serving before, we've talked about generosity. And and every time I kind of come to the middle of the passage we're studying, you can tell that Paul or Peter or whoever we were studying is really concerned with our motivation above all else. 
that we should not evangelize uh, to, for, for our name and our glory, but we should evangelize for the glory of God. We should not serve for the things we get out of it, but for the glory of God. And we see in this passage that Paul is so concerned with their motivation. And he says in, in verse 7, I think it's probably the most familiar passage within this chapter that we know. It's in verse 7, this uh, phrase that says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Is that familiar to everybody? For God loves a cheerful giver. And so I want us to discern the right motivation for giving. And I want us to play a little bit of a game with that phrase. And so we're going to put up a slide that's got three possible interpretations of this passage. Phil, we got that back there. All right, we're going to kind of have a little bit of a test, pop quiz this morning. Of these three options, which one does this mean? Are you guys ready? Here we go. When it says that God loves a cheerful giver, does it mean that God loves you if you give cheerfully? That would be God does not love you if you don't give cheerfully, but he loves you if you give cheerfully. Okay, we're just going to put that there. Second one, God prefers you to be happy about generosity, but he'll take your money either way. That's very much the parental, like you'll do it and you'll like it, but if you don't like it, you'll still do it kind of thing. And then C, God's more concerned about your heart than your money. If you're taking a test, church, and you don't know the right answer, pick C. That's what you're supposed to do. But I want to talk about these. And if you look at this passage, starting in verse 5, he gives us some, some, some bad motivations or false motivations. In verse 5, he said that we would give affected by covetousness or by greediness. What that means is that we would give as a transactional sort of um, relationship with God, that if I give him this, then he'll give me something else. Church, we don't give for what we'll get. We give for what we've already got in Christ as a response. And then in verse 7, he gave us two false motivations as well. He says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. What that means is I will not do it uh, somehow. Grudgingly would be as a license to sin or live my own way to appease God, right? Church, that's animism. That's not the gospel. Or give by compulsion. I'll just do it for the fear of man or because Liam said I should. We don't do it for that reason either. Let's put that, uh, three, those three options back up on the screen one more time. I'm sorry. One is a workspace gospel. And it is heresy. And that is a lie of Satan, that God would love you if you give cheerfully. God loves you on the basis of his character, not your works. And he loves you on the basis of Jesus, not your bank account. He gives to you, and we give as a response. It's love. He loved you, or you loved him. The second one is a little bit more tempting. And it's, do I put worship above obedience? Which one do I do? Is it okay to be, should I just continue to be robotic with my giving and kind of religious with my giving, even when I'm distant from God? And the argument for some people would be, well, maybe you should continue to give and then your heart will change later. The only problem with that is you deny the power of the gospel to say that somehow giving would soften your heart. Doesn't do it, church. Only God can soften your heart. Your giving can't soften your heart. And, and, and David learned this in Psalm 51. He said, I understand that the sacrifice you want from me is not a goat, but a broken and contrite spirit. And Jesus even taught us that if we have an offering to give and we're angry with our brother, lay the offering down, don't worship, be reconciled to your brother, get the sin dealt with in your heart, and then come back to worship God from the right spirit. God is more concerned with your heart 
than with your money. This is the right motivation for giving. It's a response. So you sit there and you say, look at what God has done for me. He's already won the battle for me. Do you like that song we sang this morning? He's already won. I'm already living in victory. I don't have to give a check or give my time or open up my home or be generous to someone so that God will love me. He's loved me. He demonstrated his love for me, Romans 5, 8, when I was unlovable, when I was still a sinner. And this is the right motivation. I I mentioned the tithe earlier, and I want to talk about it for a minute. And it's this idea, right, from the Old Testament, it's biblical church, that we would give 10% of our income to the Levitical priesthood, it would be in the Old Testament, or to the church today. And I've been asked twice this month, does the tithe still stand for the New Testament believer? And I would ask you to do something scarier than the tithe. I would ask you to live out 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. The first part of it. We looked at the part that said, God loves a cheerful giver, but I want to talk about verse seven just a little bit. It says, it says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. This gets a little scary, church. What I want to talk about is not religious tithing. I want to talk about Holy Spirit-led gospel generosity. If you didn't know that, that's one of our four values of church, that we would be gospel-centered, mission-driven, Bible-rooted, Holy Spirit-led. That we would not do things based on the churches next door is doing this, or my grandma told me to do this, or my Sunday school teacher to do this, but that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God living inside of me would actually transform the way I live and how I operate. And that's what Paul tells them to do here with this moment. He says, each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart. Church, I wish I could tell you that I've done this more. But the times that I have done it are really beautiful and they're really scary. And they're when you sit down with your Savior and you pray. And you think about the blessings God has given you. You think about what he's done for you in the gospel. Everything is his and I'm, I'm rich in Christ. And then as a response, you ask the question, Lord, what are you calling the Hardy family to give? Church, I've never felt the Holy Spirit say, I just don't give. I've never felt that. I've never felt him say, just give 4% or just give 5%. I've always felt him say, when I'm just sharing my testimony with y'all, he says, come in the deep end. Let's get scary. Let's get sacrificial. What if we gave $1,000? What if we gave $2,000? And when I open myself up, he says, you want to really do this? You really want to get sacrificial? Oh, you can give 10%. It's easy for you. You've been doing it for a while. You've just created that margin. You can do that. Let's get a little scary. Church, I want to warn you. Holy Spirit-led gospel generosity is so much harder than the tithe, and it's so much better. I believe that's Christ. Because when Jesus showed up on the scene in Matthew chapter 5, he did not lower the standard of the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, it was don't commit adultery. Jesus shows up in the New Testament. He says, don't even look at a woman lustfully. He said, in the Old Testament, it was about don't commit murder. In the New Testament, it was don't have anger toward your brother. And in the Old Testament, it was give 10%. And I believe in the New Testament, we're called to Holy Spirit-led, 
gospel-centered generosity. And church, that is a whole different level. What is God calling you to do? What has he put in your hands? What has he given you so that you might be a benefit to others? And church, this is when we start looking at every area of our lives and we start recognizing there are people who need us to be generous. They need us to invite them over to the house. They need us to pay for a meal for them. They need us to meet a need. And so that we would open ourselves up in every decision, every conversation, every time we're sitting at a stoplight, not just shutting people out saying, oh, they probably made a wreck of their life. But we'd say, Holy Spirit, what are you calling me to do? Because I don't want to live for my approval. I don't want to live for the approval of man. I live for the audience of one. And so, Holy Spirit, you get to steer this ship final thing I see in this passage with the, with the rest of the chapter is the effects of generosity. And the first one is in verse 8. And it says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency and everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. I could see how a prosperity gospel preacher might take verse 8 and have a field day. Actually, take this whole chapter and have a field day. If you give God $100, he'll give you $100,000, right? Because it says if you, if you sow uh, generously, then you will reap generously. And we will always define that more than Scripture ever does. In verse 8, I see, church, that if we live generous lives, we will have a growing confidence in an able God I love verse 8. It says, God is able. Church, when you look at your bank account and you look at your finances and you look at the stuff you have, do you believe God is able? Or are you always fearful when it comes to things? And church, we, we will walk through situations on the front end. Living Holy Spirit generosity, it'll look scary at the beginning. But then when we walk through it in obedience, we'll look behind and we'll laugh at it. Because God is faithful. And I don't know what that'll play out in your life. I don't know if he'll give you an abundance or a pay raise or, or a new job or, or a healing. I don't know exactly what God's going to do in your life. But here's what I know. He's able to do it. And he will give you all sufficiency. And notice verse 8. The abundance is not for you. It says abundance for every good deed. For every good deed. You will be given an abundance not for you. For the benefit of others. We saw that last week when we looked at serving. Peter told us to use every spiritual gift in service to others. What has God put into your hand? Not for you, but for others. Ooh. Second effect of generosity I see is in verse 12. Verse 12 actually has two. He lists two reasons, and I will talk about the first one, even though he minimizes the first one and maximizes the second one. It says, for the ministry of this service, verse 12, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There's two reasons and two effects of, of generosity that we see there. The first one, that I just want to mention it briefly because it is so beautiful and so encouraging. Verse 12 tells us that as we give, we get to supply the needs of the saints. And this is just really practical that we get to identify people who, has God, who have God's calling on their lives and, and who are called to, to advance the gospel, and we just get to come alongside them and encourage them and say, I see what God's doing in your life. I'm behind you. I'm supporting you. And I don't want you to worry about money. I just want you to keep claiming the gospel. 
one of my favorite things I've ever got to do in my 50 plus year of preaching. I'm just kidding. Um, my very short career of pastoring was call Patrick O'Toole. And I don't know if y'all remember Patrick, but he came and spoke last March. And he's going to, or they're in the process and they've already planted a church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. And Patrick came and preached and uh, we connected with him and just loved him. He, he's a pastor in our church network. And our church, our, our conviction is that we would give away 10% of everything that's given to us. We're going to tithe as a church. And so uh, by y'all's generosity, and I thank you for your generosity, um, we have uh, met and surpassed our budget every single year, which creates a wonderful problem we have at the end of the year with our elders of we've got to give away more money. Because we can't hold this. We have an abundance. It's not for us. It's for others. And so we called Patrick O'Toole and said, hey, man, we want to give y'all just a gift. Sick them. Go tear it up, man. Go plant this church. And if you know Patrick, he's a little expressive. This is me excited right here. Patrick's not like that. So I was on the phone with him, and I said, we're going to give you this gift. And then I just had to hold the phone out here for a while. Till he calmed down. I loved it, church. So thankful to be able to do that by your just generosity. You bless my heart just to be able to make that phone call. Church, we have an opportunity to be that again and again and again for generations through this church. We need to start dreaming a little bit. What could we do together? If we continue to evangelize, if we continue to serve, if we continue to be generous and give, what could God do through this church if we see our sufficiency and our abundance as an opportunity to help other people in the ministry? What could we do? Church, when we start opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit's leading, I get cold chills just thinking about the potential that is in this church. But that is the lesser reason for the greatest reason in verse 12. He says it's not just for the needs of the saints, but it's also the overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So what is the greatest reason, the greatest effect of our giving that we would be thankful and that we would give all glory and honor to our Savior? That we would see that he is the source of everything we have. And so when he takes our five loaves and two fish and he multiplies it to feed a crowd with 13 leftover baskets, we would not say, good job, Connection Church Athens. When we see people get baptized in this pool, we would not say, "Uh, good job, Connection Church Athens. We would say, all glory to our God who is providing the harvest and who's bringing people in, who's transforming hearts. He gets all So I ask you, are you taking advantage of glorifying God in this area? I've got just a few next steps, and we're almost done. What is God calling you to do? Maybe the first thing, and we need to start here, is that you would say, Liam, I identify with that heart situation you were talking about in the very beginning And I need gospel transformation because I still have a stony, stubborn heart. I've come to church. I've done the thing. I've, you know, gone to a small group, but I have not surrendered my life to Jesus. And you're kind of speaking in a different language this morning. Why? Because you don't have the right heart. And you need God to come in and do something that I can't do for you, that your connect group leader can't do for you, and that is transform your heart. And I would point you back to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. 
And I want you to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who stepped down into flesh and became poor for you so that you could be rich in him. And I beg you, look to the cross this morning and be saved. Trust Jesus with your heart. He will transform it. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you say, Liam, I give to the church, but I'm not generous. And I want to just take a next step of obedience to say, what is God calling me to do? I don't want to live on an Old Testament principle. I don't want to live on uh, you know, what everyone else says I need to be doing. I want to be doing what God is calling me to do with what I have. And then finally, church, actually I got two more, sorry, bait and switch. There's somebody here this morning and you can't be generous. You want to be generous and you've even got that right heart because God has saved your soul, but you had a past of poor stewardship. And the Old Testament says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And you say, I would love to be generous, but whenever you start talking about money, I get so fearful because I'm drowning in debt from my past. I want you to know that we are here for you to counsel you of how to get out of debt and how to steward your money so that you can be generous. And the church is a resource for you. And if you don't want to listen to me because I'm 26, there are men in this church who have done it. There are women in this church who have done it. And I look to them as godly examples, and I see them as an end zone of where I'm headed with faithful stewardship. We want to teach you how to do that. We are a resource for you of marriage counseling, parenting counseling, and financial counseling, because the church needs to come alongside people and teach them how to be stewards of God's money. So we want to encourage you to do that. Come reach out to one of the elders, to a connect group leader. We want to show you how to steward God's money, to set you out on a path of generosity. And then I saved the best for last because this is me. And I'm going to ask the band if you'll come up. And this is the person who has a new heart because of the gift of Christ. And this is the person who's exercised that muscle of generosity a little bit. But your biggest hang-up is fear and doubt. And generosity for you is not just a math problem. It's a character of God problem. And you're just afraid of the future. I'm talking about myself right now. Just let y'all know. You're afraid of the future. And so you're stingy with your money. And some of us just need to take our eyes off bank account and we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and say, this is not an exercise of really anything else but trust. So God, I'm going to trust you. Not to do something stupid. Not what I'm asking you to do. But to do something a little scary by the Holy Spirit's lead. We've got to be able to do that, church. Taking steps of faith. Not knowing how it's going to turn out. But having that good idea because of who our God is. We just need to trust. Lord, what have you put in my hand that I can use for the best of others? Church, I love you. I'm thankful for your generosity. You are a generous people. I thank you for that. We've all got a next step. We've all got a next step with this.
So I ask you, what is the Spirit calling you to do this morning? We're going to respond with time of worship, sing a song. We're going to have an elder down front. If you need to make a decision for Christ, uh, be careful around the baptismal pool. Hop in. We can baptize somebody else real quick. You know, if we need to, that's fine with me. Let's respond however the Spirit. Amen? Man, I love you, church. Let's pray. Father, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who became flesh and became poor and took on the form of a servant so that we could have life in his name, God. And we, we're just in awe of, Lord, how you've blessed us with material things, God. You've blessed us spiritually. You've given things for each of us to leverage for your kingdom, God, in different areas and different giftings. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just open ourselves up this morning to the Spirit's leading, God, that we would have soft, responsive hearts that would do whatever you call us to do. And Lord, we're just going to trust that you're working in this world or that you are the power source of the Great Commission, Lord, and your plans will not fail. That we just give it all to you, Lord, and we ask you what you call us to do in response to the gospel. But I thank you for these people. I thank you for this precious, precious church, God. Would you be glorified in our time of worship? In Jesus' name, amen.